inspiring you to reach your goals and live your dream. And live your dream. This is the Keaton Nelson Show. Alrighty, guys. I've got Jeff Finster on here. He's uh, the founder of Everbold. And man, is he crushing it. I'm so excited for you guys to hear his story. Uh, Jeff, thanks for being on, man. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I always like to start the show with like trying to get to know like where you're from, man. How'd you grow up? Were you broke, poor, uh, rich, middle class? Where'd you, where'd you land? Yep. So uh, born and raised San Diego, first American born in my family. My parents and sister moved here from Canada. Uh, middle class. My dad was a doctor. My mom was a teacher. And, um, you know, I had more money than than uh, some, less money than others. So, you know, there were times where we were tight. There were times where we took some vacations. So, you know, it was a as good of as good a childhood as you can get. But definitely had uh, loving parents, not broken home. Uh, you know, they were champions in my corner, pushed me, you know, go to college, go to college, go to college. So um, I had a nice support system and and a nice upbringing. Nothing to complain about at all. That's good, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so where uh, did you go to school? Is it go to college, go to college? Where'd you go? Yeah, I went to uh, undergrad at University of Arizona in law school at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. Oh, damn. Would you, yeah. uh, what was the undergrad? Is it like political science or something like that? No, uh, regional development with a basically Sim City the the degree. So how zoning works and planning and real estate and why you build commercial where you do and how to how to do all those things and looking at topography maps and floodplains and gotcha man you know borophil stuff yeah 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 borophil <laughs> love it um, so you went to law school did we ever become a lawyer or no i went to law school to be a sports agent so i had a job lined up with lee steinberg sports agency uh, the real world jerry Maguire. i went to high school with uh, kellen winslow jr and um had a bunch of athletes that were friends and i was gonna be a sports agent but my third year of law school i ended up having a kid and getting engaged and decided when i graduated law school that i didn't want to travel around the world representing adults i wanted to be a dad and present so um I pivoted actually after I got the degree in six figures in law school loans. Yeah, I bet. Um, dang. What was it like being in debt? Um, and you weren't, because you, you're in debt, you're not going to be doing the job that you were paid or like went in debt for. Um, we have a similar story actually. But uh, how did that feel at the well, moment? I mean, the, it, it sucks, right? Being in debt. I mean, law school debt was twelve hundred bucks a month. It was two thousand and seven, and on top of which, I now have a baby to f- take care of and a fiance to take care of. And um, luckily, I have a higher education degree, so I was employable. Uh, you know, as far as jobs go, but I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. Uh, you know, I'd always done sales and marketing stuff, and sports agency is selling yourself, selling your client. I was pretty good at telemarketing in college. I had a nice telemarketing job and an outside sales job, so. I figured sales is where I was going to go make my money. I mean, truthfully, being a sales rep is kind of like the best way to carve out your own income if you want to make money fast, because if you get the right job, you're not limited to, you know, you make this salary until this period, then you get a raise and you move through, but you actually can kill what you eat, so to speak, eat what you kill. Um, And so you can grow your own wealth that way. So I got a job with ADP, the payroll company. Oh, nice. I was slanging payroll door to door businesses 50 and under were my uh were kind of my my sweet spot i was there for uh just on, just over six months um my first six months there i was the number one sales rep in the country i made president's club made 210 grand 
uh, bought a house. Everything was going great. I had a whole career lined up with ADP. They told me, oh, you're going to be the CEO of our company one day. <laughs> and when I, uh, when I took the job in my contract, I had a $17,000 base pay increase. So I was at 38,000 plus commission. And if I sold a certain amount, I'd get up to 54,000 base. And this was 2007. And so I hit those numbers in, in just under six months. And I went to my boss and I said, listen, I hit my numbers. I want my raise. And they told me, yeah, you get it at the end of the fiscal year. It's an annual bonus. You just happened to hit it faster than most. So you got to chill out till the end of the fiscal. It was January of 08. Fiscal ended in June of 08. So I wouldn't get it till July. And I said, no way. Um, felt like a prisoner. I was like, oh my God, this is not the life I want where even when I do kill it, I have to wait. And so I went home that night uh, to my new house that I'd been in for just over two months, told my fiance, I want to threaten to quit if they don't give it to me. And if they do, I want to quit my job and start my own payroll company. And if I do that, we're gonna have to sell this house and move in with my parents because I don't have any money. And <laughs> she was supportive. And I went in the next day, threatened to quit if they didn't give it to me. Um, they told me to quit if I'm not, you know, if there's nothing they could do, basically. So they called my bluff. I quit. We sold the house, moved my daughter and my fiance into my mom and dad's house and started my first company in February of uh, 2008, which was a payroll company called iChecks. And that's kind of how I got thrust into entrepreneurship and starting my own thing and doing my own thing and, you know, still in debt and happened to be three months before the great financial recession. So my timing was, was awesome. <laughs> that's wild, man. Uh, yeah. So what was your pitch at ADP? When I was selling payroll? Yeah. Myself, I basically said, listen, you don't get fired for choosing ADP. You know, one out of every five Americans is paid by an ADP check. Everyone else is trying to do what we do. We're the world's best. So go with us. And if it doesn't work out, I'll help you go back to whoever you're with. So you have nothing to lose and, and it'll work. And then when I competed against ADP, yeah, I just flipped the script and I said, listen, ADP is, is never going to go anywhere. So if I do a bad job, you can always go back to ADP. And there's guys like me begging for your business. So why don't you give me a shot? I'll cut your bill in half. And if you're not happy, I'll help you move back to ADP. I used to work there as a number one sales rep. I know it inside and out. I know everybody there. And I assure you that you won't have any issues or problems. Hmm. Yeah. So what, okay. What about the objection? Like, oh, it's too painful to switch. I don't want to take well, that's the beauty of having me. So I handle all that for you. So really all I need from you is a, is a check stub. Give me your two last payroll reports. If you don't know how to get them, I can get them for you and I'll handle the whole thing. And all you're going to notice is you're going to pay less at the end of the month. Sound fair? Sounds fair. That's good. Love it, man. Very, very cool. So yeah. where'd you grow that business to? Um, that your iChecks? So yeah. So iChecks, we grew, uh, actually exploded in the financial recession actually helped because my pitch was to save you money. So I was helping businesses save money when the world was tightening and everyone was hurting. Uh, I ended up raising some private equity capital and at the end of 2008, beginning of 09 from Innovate Partners and Claritas Capital. We ended up changing the name to Canopy HR and built uh, one of the world's first single database HRIS platforms, leveraging technology, bringing it to an antiquated uh, you know, industry where everything was in filing cabinets and on paper. So we built a single database employee self-service portal from hire to fire and every event in between. And then in 2011, sold it to a company in Florida called Mangrove Systems. And, um, you know, it was fun. It was a good experience. I bet it was. Yeah, so I got questions about that. So when you're uh, going and searching for private ec equity, um, what was that like? Or, or fun? Uh, so it's interesting. Professional money is is very dangerous. Um, you're dealing with 
sophisticated experts that understand what they need to do to protect their money, their downside risk, they're going to get what they want from you. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just means you need to go with your with clear eyes and, and a full understanding. I got my MBA through the School of Hard Knocks dealing with private equity firms because while we sold the company, what I failed to realize was how much of the company I was going to own at that time. Um, so what happened was we raised $1.5 million originally. And we took the, their money, they gave it to us, and they gave us all this advice. You should open another office in our in our Orange County facility. So I had two offices. We should hire these people, hire a CTO, hire this, pen this, do this, do this. So yeah. as our revenue was doing this, in parallel, our expenses were doing this sure. more than what our revenue was. So every new dollar I brought in, we spent $1.50, which means inevitably you're going to run out of money, but right. you're growing. And so every time we were going to run out of money or we were forecasted to run out of money in six months, they would say, listen, business uh... rate... We'll put in the money. Do you have your share? No, no problem. There'll be a dilution event, but we'll put more money in. So they were uh, systematically taking more of our company as we were growing all the way to the exit. So I started, you know, when I first raised the money, me and my, I had a partner, me and my partner, we had 71% of the company. When we sold, we were down to 18%. And so you can do the math on on that. But am I upset about it? Absolutely not. I made money. I have an exit on my, on my Rolodex. I did good by my private equity guys. Um, I gained an enormous amount of knowledge and expertise. The MBA that I got was through actual, I didn't pay money to go to, I didn't pay a college for an MBA. I paid money through the sale of my company, but I got that knowledge. So now I have a law degree and an MBA through the School of Hard Knocks and it set me up for the next 10 years of my life, you know? Mm. So um, what, where did you grow the company to before you took on money? Like, what, what was your revenue at? How many employees did you have? What was that looking like? So the employees was uh, my my partner, myself, and we had two employees. So four of us total. Uh, revenues at that time, I think our annualized forecasted, fo- you know, following 12-month revenue was going to be about $3.1 million. Shit. It's a lot of payroll, isn't it? It's a lot of payroll. <laughs> a lot of payroll, especially when I'm charging you fifty dollars a paycheck. Yeah, but it. I figured out how to get people to come to me versus me go to them. So instead of selling door to door and one to one, I started basically getting figureheads. So I went to bankers and I went to CPAs and I would go to a banker and I'd say, "Listen, you open up new business bank accounts every day, all day. I'll tell you what. When you open up those accounts, you introduce me every single time, and I'll tell you what I'll do is every time I'm out on the streets and I sell a new payroll client." I'm going to tell them that I work with you, Mr. XYZ at Chase Bank. Mm. And so I'll bring you business, you bring me business. And so I did that with CPAs. I did that with bookkeepers. I did that with bankers. So basically, if you, obviously, it's geographically uh, constrained for them, not for me. So if you were the, you know, Chase Banker in La Jolla, and I have any business I sell in La Jolla, I'm going to bring them to you. But obviously, if they're in Los Angeles, they're not going to go to La Jolla for the bank. So I get to find a banker in Los Angeles and these sub sub markets. So I found bankers in all my markets. I found CPAs and bookkeepers in all my markets. And I use the same easy pitch, which is I'm working for you. You're working for me. So I ended up having a, a enormous army of sales reps all over the country selling for me because every time someone would open a business bank account or they'd hire a CPA to do their books, that CPA would say, well, listen, who does your payroll? Oh, ADP. Well, I want you to talk to Jeff over at iChecks because Jeff is who I work with. He gives me the reports in a manner with which I need them. It'll save you money on the back end with me and he'll save you money on the front end with your payroll services. He's great. I trust him. Use him. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say no to that. So no, I started no, getting good. so many inbound leads from that, that I grew my payroll business very quick, um, which not only helped us with revenue and helped us make money, but it also attracted private equity. And then when we switched to our HRIS platform and our Canopy HR system, 
we started going upstream to much bigger clients, you know, and we started working with some of the, you know, three day blinds and, and Jiffy Lube and Easy Lube and, um, right. you know, uh, pickup sticks and all these bigger restaurants and bigger, bigger industries. Um, but it was the same methodology, right? It was the same approach, which is instead of me selling to them, build a net and have them come into and swim into your net. That's cool. Really, really cool. Um, but before you, let's well, like, let's talk about when you went to the first like banker, right? You went to that first guy, you know, Chase Bank. Um, did you feel like you needed to give him a referral first, or like, of course. you know what I mean? Like, that, that's the other thing. Like, people can go to a whole bunch of these like JV partnerships all they want and, and make these partnerships, but if you're not giving back on the other end, you're kind of just an asshole, and people find out really, really quick. You know what I'm saying? Well, a hundred percent, and it's it's lead with value. Uh, so that's exactly how it would come first. Is is I would pick a banker in a market because I would already have sold a client in that market. So it's not like I'm like, oh, I want clients in you know, El Paso, Texas, let me just go find a banker in El Paso, Texas. No, I go find payroll clients in El Paso, Texas. I do the hard work first. Then I say, listen, if you want to save an extra $10 per paycheck with me, I want you to go talk to Sally in, in this regional bank or Wells Fargo or Chase or bank, whatever bank it happened to yeah. be, which was the best bank in that area for business. And I would Google what is the best business bankers in the region, find out who they are. And then I bring them business first. Always. Always, 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 and gift card, and take them to lunch, and wine and dine, and make sure that they love me because I need to give value first. They're going to give me a lot more value later. Wow! So you only had four. Well, I guess I won't, I'll count yourself as an employee, but you had four employees when you're at you're projected to do three point one million. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know it's a shitload of clients and a shitload. Of yeah. I know what I pay. I know what I pay for payroll. It's a lot of payroll. <laughs> Um, how is, yes. like were you guys pulling your hair out? It, it shit, like you guys must have been working nonstop. Well, I mean, the beauty was luckily it was 2007 and or in 2008 and 2009 and not 2002. So we had a, a technology that handled most of the payroll stuff. Think, think QuickBooks, right? So think of a bookkeeper who handles big clients with QuickBooks. So I had an online portal where people would enter, you'd enter your own payroll hours, you'd hit process, it would send me a report, and then we would print checks put them in envelopes and give them to a FedEx courier that's going to deliver them next day or the direct deposits would happen by the bank. So you don't need an enormous number of humans to handle that kind of processing. What you do need- you get pissed off clients ever? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you the very first payroll, a funny story. So it's me and my my one of my best friends. We had just started the company. I, I got him a job at ADP and then I stole him from ADP after I started my eye checks. And I was like, you're going to come do this with me. We knew nothing about how to process payroll. We knew everything about how to sell payroll. So we sold, I went to all my clients that I had sold at ADP when I had started my business and said, basically you're coming with me. So I started with 80 clients. Um, and all, all of them were excited to join me, et cetera. So the very first pay run, you know, we got this new software, we got these printers, we got this check stock, we print all the checks, we get them out, we courier them, we do all this. We're high-fiving in our office on Friday. And the first phone call comes and it says, Hey, my employees went to the bank and the bank says the checks aren't cashable. Like what? And then another call and another call and another call. And now employees are freaking out because when these employees need this money for the weekend and it's Friday. Oh, yeah. We didn't realize that there's this thing called micro ink, which is it's a magnetic thing that's in the ink of, of that you buy special ink cartridges that the bank software knows. So you don't print checks at home and do check fraud. Well, we didn't know that. 
So we printed all these checks that were basically worthless pieces of paper and delivered them to hundreds of employees all around San Diego. And so we then had to get in our cars and drive payroll to people and to their banks and make deposits and, and run frantically on our very first pay run because we had to learn about Micro Inc. So, yeah, you know, there's that's how, But that's how you learn. That's how you learn. You, you learn by doing. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And you could have waited until you figured all that stuff out and then gotten clients. But you just went and got clients. For, yeah. I, you, know those, you know what those people are? Those are the people who who end their life with regret and always talk about what they could have done. It's never perfect. You'll never learn it all. It's like I can tell you about what it feels like to swim and how to swim. But until you actually go in the water and try, you'll never know. Right. It's a different experience. So you got to just do it. And and that's part of, I mean, not to play off the name of the podcast, but perpetual motion is it. You know, idle hands stay idle. That's it. That's it. So um, you get equity. But I... I'm just interested, like, how did they approach you for Who? the uh, private capital? I, we went out for them. Uh, so I went to, yeah, so my personal CPA, you know, he's got a lot of relationships, et cetera. Uh, he's a very good friend of the family. He's been my CPA, my dad's best friend forever. So I went to him and said, look, we're looking to raise capital because we recognize we wanted to build, build technology. We wanted to get kind of change the scope of the business from where we were to where we thought we needed to be. And I needed money to do it. And so um, we went basically and said, hey, can you help us make some introductions? He started introducing us to investors and some private equity firms. And we got went through the dog and pony show. And luckily, we were able to, to close one. Mm. So it was, uh, will they take 29%? Initially on the first run, yeah. 1.5? Yeah. Not a bad valuation. No. 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 That's, that's pretty cool. Uh, what did you exit with? Can you, can you disclose that? Uh, well, I, me and my partner combined had 18%. 18%. What did you what was the whole valuation of the, the I, I can just tell you I made I made north of seven figures. So okay. it was, yeah. I can't right. I can't be upset about it, but um uh yeah, yeah. I should have made a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are some lessons uh throughout that process that you would um like people to learn from you rather than trying to have it learn learn the hard way? Well, I think there's two things. Number one a lot of people look at that story or hear that story and go, oh, and you shouldn't have raised the money. And I disagree. Um, I don't agree either. Because what I've made personally from that day till now is 10x, right? I've made millions and millions of dollars since then because of the lessons I learned with that private equity and understanding how professional money actually works. This is America. This is a capital. It's based on capitalism. And professional money is actually how everything moves. And when you can get any kind of insight into how it actually works, how to have access to it, build that relationship capital with the right groups and the right people and know how they think and what they're looking for, you can then build and scale companies not only to make you money, but to exit. You know, 90% of businesses never sell, not because they're not profitable, because they're not sellable. And they're not sellable because people don't realize what professional money who will buy you is looking for. Most people can't afford to buy companies, right? Like I can go and say, oh, I wanted to buy the payroll company from me. I couldn't have afforded that. So you needed a bigger agency, a bigger company. And those bigger companies are backed by professional money, right? So it's like when professional money sits like us, like if I wanted to go acquire another payroll company, I needed my professional money to sign off on it. And they're going to scrutinize that business. Also, when I'm growing and starting my companies, when you go out to raise capital, if you understand how professional money thinks, you can back into easily how to get investors that aren't professional money because you already understand 
what professional money is looking for. And so I think the lesson that I would make sure that suggest that everyone tries to get from that is, is don't be scared of the fact that you may pay more upfront. If you don't have the experience, you need the experience, you need the knowledge and getting that sign off, getting that professional money under your belt is important. If you don't need it, stay away from it. But a lot of companies do need it. Mm. Boom. So you made north of seven figures. Yep. Then uh, where uh, where did that money go? Uh, not where it's, it's not worth much just sitting there. No. Uh, so I did a couple of things. I, uh, paid off my law school loans. So I had no more debt. I actually paid off my mortgage. So I actually owned my house free and clear. Everyone told me that was a mistake, but, um, interest rates weren't 2% like they were the last four years before this recent, uh, situation. And, you know, I just had a second kid. Uh, my second daughter was born at the end of 2011. And I just figured, you know what, no matter what, I, I can swing free and clear the rest of my days and know that I have a house for my family and not have to run any risks. So I paid off my mortgage, paid off all my debt. I had no bills. My monthly nut was just consumables, food, gas, power, et cetera, internet. And I decided that I wanted to work from a computer and start another company. So I knew nothing about computers. So I figured, hey, I'll start a digital marketing agency and I'll be able to work from home and see my kids more and not travel as much. And so I started a digital marketing agency. And um, ended up partnering with Neil Patel, who uh, is pretty renowned in the space. He co-founded Kissmetrics, Hello Bar, Crazy Egg, and we worked with some of the biggest companies on the on the you know on the internet, from eBay, Overstock, Viacom, Amazon, um, Gunbroker, and made a lot of money. Had a lot of fun and helped a lot of companies, and did that from 2012 till uh, end of 2015. Isn't that a coincidence? I run a digital marketing company. Yes, that's yes. Um, what advice would you give me? <laughs> well, um, same situation, right? I mean, it's all about sales and how do you get that? And so mm-hmm. I knew nothing about digital marketing. Neil was an expert at digital marketing. I had relationship capital to bring to the table because I had sold payroll to a lot of big companies and leveraged the fact that I had just been in the HR department working with some of the biggest companies on the in the in the country, um, using our HRIS platform and meeting and greeting and making that relate, you know, building those relationships and making friends. And so now I was able to leverage that to this new endeavor. Um, and I believe in uh, the bug light theory. So, um, you know, because I was not known in the industry and, and didn't know anything about it, I had to partner with somebody who did. And so I went out for the best. And so I reached out and got introduced to Neil and got him to work with me and um, leveraged his name and brand reputation and his expertise and my sales experience and relationship capital. And we were able to do a lot of damage and it was great. You know, back then it was a lot easier than it is today because timing is just as important as knowledge, right? So I was in the payroll business back when it was still all in filing cabinets and I was part of the revolution to bring it digit to digitize it. Uh, digital marketing in early 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, you still had a lot of businesses that didn't understand internet, weren't selling a lot of e-commerce stuff. It was still new. It was still like most business was still done in catalogs. The Sears catalog was still a thing. Social media was still at the early stages. Um, everyone thought you had to be 12 years old to understand it. And luckily, you know, I'm 40, but I look, imagine how I look 10 years ago. I'm a young <laughs> guy. Um, and so Neil and I fit the bill. We looked the part. We were young. Uh, we He understood it. We could talk CRO, CMO. We, we could use acronyms all day long. And I can tell you about how we can use 
pixels on your website and track heat maps and crazy egg did this and kiss metrics got down to the granular level i can tell you something shopping cart abandonment and let us do this and so we built a lot of contracts on the where we made our money on the upside and so it was awesome um it's a lot harder now <laughs> every company understands it uh there's a lot of sophistication in your industry now which is one of the reasons i got out of it at, at the end of 2015 is the easy money i think was made and so you know i'm a I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not a lifer in any one industry. And so, um, but I think for, for, if I was starting again, I would, I would probably look for a niche inside of it. Instead of trying to be a digital marketing agency to everybody, I would cherry pick a niche, a vertical, whether it was lawyers, you know, whether it was uh dentist offices and, and really figure out how I can help them on the local SEO stuff. Cause that's actually going to turn into real business for them um, and get them clients if I was going after the big guys, you got to have relationships. You got to you got to know people inside those industries. Cool. Yeah. Um. So when when did uh, Everbowl come about? 2016. So uh, sold off our clients. Neil spun off. Uh, we spun it off, and then Neil started Neil Patel Digital, and I was kind of retired, driving my wife and kids crazy. And my mom, my wife said, go do something. You're driving us crazy. So I started Everbowl kind of as a hobby. Um, and I wanted to reinvent the healthy eating situation in America. Three out of uh, three out of five Americans eat three out of five Americans eat fast food 3.2 times a week. So we realized that we have a fast food problem in America, an obesity problem in America. When you look at heart disease, stroke, obesity, cancer, diabetes, hypertension, and all these conditions that plague us. 80% of them are preventable or delayable with lifestyle, moving our bodies and eating real food. And so I wanted to make healthy eating affordable, filling, delicious, and accessible. And so I figured, hey, I'll start Everbowl. I love acai bowls and superfood bowls. There was no availability to get them back in 2016. Nobody knew what they were. Jamba Juice didn't have them. Smoothie King didn't have them. The big guys didn't have them. There was a few small little coffee shops that did and local little eateries. Um, I was importing them and making them in the house. And so I took over a Smoothie King in Poway, California and turned it into Everbowl as the world's first, uh, you know, acai bowl focused, create your own style like Chipotle and did it as a hobby, figuring, hey, I'm going to grow this thing and scale it. And so I started my first one and it cost me almost 300 grand to build it, which was a lot of money. And I was like, well, I want to build 100 of these. So that's not going to work. So part of my scale, the way I scale companies is a concept called vertical integration where I vertically integrate all of these issues. So I started a construction company called We Built. We built stuff. And We Built <laughs> was to, That's awesome. you know, yeah, was to you, build everything. No, just like you like glaze over it because it's just what you do, you know. But it's pretty funny. You're just like, oh, it's going to cost me too much money to build this. So I'm going to create a company that builds things. That's yeah. fucking awesome. Well, you're yeah. going to, because I, I was going to build 50 of them, right? If I was only building right. one, it wouldn't make sense. But I knew I wanted to build 50 Everbulls. I knew I was going to then go spend 50 times 300 grand. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So the margins must be really good. And at a minimum, I can cut my cost by 40% because that's the margin on that stuff, even if I don't do it better. Uh, but when I control the people and I control the industry, the, the, the business itself and all of the stuff inside, I can do it better, right? So I can systematically work my cost down. So I did. And so I went from 300 grand down to 100 grand from 100 grand down to 50 grand. And then I was able to open so many. And so I opened, you know, I opened 28 Everbowls by March of 2020 from October of 2016, um, you know, and built them all myself. Well, my company, we built, built them. Um, and it was great, you know, and then COVID happened. And yeah, yeah. so March, March 18th, 2020, we 
laid off 400 plus people, shut down 28 stores in two states and sat around thinking, what's next? You know, and that's part of being an entrepreneur. Perpetual motion is uh, doing something active, right? You got to doing anything is better than doing nothing. And so uh, me and a couple of my executives, we got together. We came up with a concept called later bowls, which was our bowls, put 10 of them in a, in a freezer box with dry ice and deliver them to people's homes. They can make our bowls in their own house while they're stuck social distancing. And um, we started doing that. So we started, we spun up a website on Shopify, leveraged a little bit of our digital marketing know-how and our existing clientele that around our 28 stores. And we started to generate a lot of sales and that was really picking up steam. And so I then uh, decided it was time to get on a QVC. So I used some relationship capital, made my way to QVC. Uh, we ended up selling uh, selling on QVC, our later bulls. We sold out in seven minutes um, and we sold, we were aired 14 times, sold out all 14 was January's big deal. We did 4.9 million in sales through QVC in 2021. And we had this new direct-to-consumer business. And then so when May started, we reopened all of our Everbulls and decided it was time to franchise. And so that was our first opportunity. We were never going to franchise, but now it just made sense because I couldn't travel as much. And we had over 500 franchise requests all along. And I never wanted to be in that business, but we're kind of built to franchise because we build the stores. We have all the systems in place. I have a third company called Unevolved Products, which is I import my own superfoods and we manufacture it all. So that's what provides the food for the direct to consumer. So I could sell the food for the franchisees. I could build the stores for the franchisees. I could give them the brand Everbull and then I could give them the, the playbook on how to do it. And so uh, we started franchising and we sold off all of our corporate stores and now we're up to 324 franchise locations. You know, uh, Drew Brees is our biggest franchisee. He has a hundred stores. Um, we're in 16 states. You know him personally? Yeah, he's a he's a friend of mine, yeah. That's awesome. Um, and uh he's actually an investor of Everbull as well. So he's an investor, he's a brand ambassador, he's a uh franchisee. Um Yeah, what's the what's the franchise cost? So our franchise fee is 30 grand and we build the store for about a hundred grand. So it's all in about 130 grand, and our competitors Could to build a competitor of ours will normally cost you about three hundred still. So we're about 150 grand cheaper. So you can get two or even three Everbulls for the price of one of our competitors. So same model from payroll. I'm going to do it better, faster, and cheaper um, because that's how you make sales and that's how you grow your brand. And the beauty is because of the vertical integration, I can also do it even cheaper if I had to, right? I don't have to make money building the store. I'm building Everbulls. The fact that I can make money doing that is, is a dream, but really it's to save money because I want you to open and put my brand in your location, get it open in a new market, introduce us to three, four, five, six hundred people a day. And all of a sudden we grow and then we get more franchisees as a result of them coming in, trying the food and seeing it. And to help us with marketing, right? If you want to get all this free attention and marketing, growth and momentum helps, right? So the faster we open stores, we get publicity. The more publicity we get, we get more sales, which helps us open more stores. And it becomes this amazing self-fulfilling prophecy circle. <laughs> Very, very cool, man. Um, how much? Pause on that one. Um, the the stores are you building it from the ground up, or or is it like you're take you're building out a location? Building out a location. Usually, it's a second gen something, whether it was a right, former right. restaurant or a, you know a haircut or a nail salon or an office building, you know, like a state farm agency. I mean, usually it was something else. We have done grayscale grayshell where they basically have just built a brand new building and we're the first tenant okay. i don't recommend those those cost a lot more money because you got to do like duct work and put in bathrooms and spend more money on things that you can just find something else that already has it 
But sometimes the location's killer. I mean, we built one from the ground up on on college campuses. I mean, we're in sports stadiums. We're in Las Vegas Raiders Stadium, San Diego Padres Petco Park, Pechanga Arena. Uh, we're going into the Superdome. We're on college campuses, San Diego State, Arizona State, University of Central Florida, Purdue. Um, we're opening in uh, Auburn, University of Auburn. So those ones, like those are cash cows. I'll build from the ground up. But your local suburban retail center where there's a grocery anchor it's easier to just take a second gen something yeah for those the ones that are in the retail centers what's the revenue looking like and the margins and everything? i mean this is a pitch for you to sell people <laughs> franchisees but well, i'm actually interested you know they vary right so it varies sure, by yeah. region and market franchise laws which means i can't tell you or make commitments that are going to lead you to believe certain things i can tell you um the margins are healthy when you can do our goal is is about a hundred if we can get about 120 to 150 customers a day um which isn't that many we do really well uh really really well you know our average ticket's 13 to 15 dollars so you can start to do some math um but the the benefit is that's not benefit, bad at all it's not no that's and the benefit is that the way we built these it's the next iteration of ice cream shops right so my 17 year old daughter she's been working with us since she was 14 she manages a store by herself and in one hour i can train anyone who's 13 years older 13 years older older to handle customers right they won't be able to handle the inventory and back of house stuff but they'll be able to handle and handle whatever customer flow i mean it really is create your own you walk through it's like chipotle you point i fill your bowl and give it to you at the end so there's not a lot of com- complexity to it you don't have to cook anything. There's no hoods, no ovens, no grease traps, no no real sophisticated labor. So it's as simple of a restaurant as you can be. It's closer to a convenience store than it is a restaurant um, or as close as you could get to one. And so the simplified labor. The ovens. Yeah. Because you, you, you don't have to have a problem when you get into like, you know, any type of more of a real restaurant is if you lose your cook, you have to train somebody. If they cook the food wrong, your customers are upset. We manufacture all of our flavors and provide them to you. So you are scooping our acai, our vanilla, our pitaya, our cocoa love. I've already made the flavors. They taste the same in every single Everbowl, just like McDonald's, right? McDonald's, you go in a Big Mac, tastes the same every single one you ever go to. The challenge franchises have is when it's different, right? And when you're starting to cook to order, you're at the mercy of how good the chef is or how well trained they are. And then if they leave, the business is kind of stuck. If everyone quit on me tomorrow, I can get a new crop of people in high school age kids who want minimum wage and want to make tip money and aren't lifers. And I can help them be a valuable employee within an hour, hour and 10 minutes. I mean, it's literally that quick. So <laughs> it's it's a simple business, which is one of the things that attracts people to it. Um, it's a hot brand. It's a hot market. You know, health and wellness is a is the future people understand now that eating bad is bad for you um our why is this word unevolved and it's a word i created and trademarked and it means to live actively and eat stuff that's been around forever live an unevolved lifestyle and part of that i think is clear right you see the 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 movement towards you know plant-based products and health and wellness and even mcdonald's came out with McPlant and salads are in their menus now and people are trying to figure out how to capture this health conscious consumer so that's where the world's going and as a result of that, skate to where the puck's going to be and get ahead of it. And that's, again, it, I would say my number one thing I've been fortunate about in my career is timing. I tend to be in the industry at the right time. 
I started in the payroll business today, I wouldn't have had the success I had. If I started in digital marketing today, I wouldn't have had the success I had. And if I started Everbolt today, I wouldn't have had the success I've had. So timing is just as important as the idea. Um, you know, you don't want to be the, you don't want to come into a saturated market. Your goal is to get there early, right? Like real estate, build, buy the land before everyone wants it, not buy it at the top of the market, buy low, sell high. So timing is key. And that's part of business. Um, that's, you know that, right? So not just one of the things. No, no, this is, this is, we need to be reminded more than we need to be taught. Correct. Yeah. Well, it's hard. I mean, buying low and selling high in anything is really hard. Like, I'll be honest, mm-hmm. people are not buying certain things right now, like whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's stocks, whether it's this, because it, they've been getting crushed lately. I just bought a lot of, a lot of stock, a lot of the indexes two days ago. Look at the last two days. I mean, it's, it's flying up because it was oversold, right? You want to buy when there's blood on the streets and you want to sell when everyone thinks it can't go down. Um, it's hard though. It's easy to say it. Everyone knows buy low, sell high. It's really easy to say. It's really hard to do. You know, oh my God, when everyone's selling and it looks so gloom and doom, nobody wants to buy. And then when everything is going up, 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 nobody wants to sell. And so that's why most people don't make money in markets. That's why they, they that's why it's called the 1%. 99% just don't do what the 1% do. It's true. All right, man. I'm going to be respectful of your time. I got three questions that I ask every guest. Uh, what's what's one book everyone should read? Everyone needs to read. Uh, Relentless. Relentless. Who's that by? Um, it's, 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 what's that? Who's it by? Um, Jesus. It's uh, Kobe and Jordan's guy. Um, Goggins. Oh, no, not Goggins. Uh, no, I'm blanking on his name. I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. No, I, it's um, my favorite book, and I'm I'm literally blanking on on his name now that you just put me on the on the spot. It's um, Grover, Tim Grover. Tim Grover, yeah. Yes. Okay. Cool. It's actually a really cool story. It's uh, Tim Grover was the personal trainer for Michael Jordan, and then Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade, and he gets into the mindset of being relentless and what separated those guys from the rest and how it's not talent, it's not skill, it's all between the ears. So I highly recommend that. I read that book. Listen to it on audio because it's even better when it's being told to you. It, you'll laugh, you'll enjoy it, it'll inspire you, and you'll get out there and kick some ass. Mm, that's good. Yeah, I I invested a lot in learning about mindset it's in a matter of months of quadrupled my business. You know, oh yeah. Um, lifestyle gets better. I bet your uh, relationship with your wife and your kids get better. Everything gets better when you fix your life. Yeah. Oh, for uh, sure. For sure. You're it's stuck. You're stuck with it twenty four hours a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, what's what's the biggest regret you have in your life? Ooh. Biggest regret. I mean, it's it's going to sound stupid because it's not that huge of a regret, but I didn't travel abroad in college. Really? Yeah. Why, I, is, why, I, is, that, why is that the regret? Just because, because I think it would have been it. such an incredible experience to do. Um, and a lot of my friends did it, and I was too chicken. I was set to go. I was going to go to the island of Malta, and then in the last minute, I didn't want to go alone. And so I, I found an excuse, and I didn't do it. And... I regretted it. I don't really make excuses anymore. And when I'm scared of something, I persevere through it anyway. And if I, I have a personal mantra, which is if I don't want to do something, I have to do it. And if I want to do it, I do it. So um, I don't want to get up and work out. That means I have to do it. 
right. Oh, I have to do it. Oh, I'm scared to go to an island of Malta by myself. I have to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't really do those stuff anymore. But in college, I was a chicken shit and I didn't do it. And then I regret it. Mm. I know it's not that big of one, but I don't know. No, it's good with much regret. So I can't think of another one off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, so you're going to go back in time. This is my last question for you. You go back in time to talk to yourself at any age. But when you get back there, you can only tell yourself three sentences. Three sentences. Yeah. What age would you go back to? Okay. What would those three sentences be? And then I'll leave it up to you if you want to say why. Right. You don't have to, but you can. I would go back to my. I'd go back to twenty-two. Um, I would tell myself, lose the ego, be the dumbest guy in the room, and have. And pay attention to your insecurities. And the reason why is because I spent the first five years when my payroll business pushing away talented humans from my organization because I had too big of an ego. I had an insecurity that I thought because I was super young and running a company, I had to be the smartest guy in the room and make sure everyone understood that I wasn't a fraud. And um, it took me about four or five years of losing talent before I finally looked in the mirror and realized I was the common denominator and I was the problem. And so I shifted my mindset after that, when I was in my mid twenties to being the dumbest guy in the room, surrounding myself with rock stars and giving them the freedom to be rock stars and not be worried that I'm not the guy who came up with the idea or came up with the strategy. Um, I'm the guy who wins because I'm on the team that came up with the idea or the strategy. And that made me go from making high six figures in wealth to high seven and eight figures in wealth, that little pivot. And it happened. If I can go back to 22, I would have saved myself four or five years. And I'd probably be a billionaire right now. So I wish I could, uh, could go back and do that. Cool. Really cool, man. Uh, where can everyone go follow you? Um, social media at Fenster Jeff, email either Jeff at everbowl.com or connect at Jeff Fenster.com. Yeah, guys, go buy a franchise. Yeah, why not? Let's have some fun. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, so if you listen to this long, it means you like this guy, you can go check him out, go rate uh, this podcast, share it out with your friends and family. People need to hear this. this is really good. This is a good episode, man. Thanks for thanks for all your insight and advice. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And as I also like to give back, if there's anything I can ever do for you, uh, you please let me know. And also anyone in your audience, you know, I I do like to lead with value. I don't just talk shit on podcasts. So uh, reach out if I can make an introduction or help you do something. I'm happy to do it. Awesome. You hear that? He can introduce you to Drew Brees. So I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. If you're not, if you're listening, he's, he's, uh, he's agreeing. So hit him up.